this morning as we look at chapter number 10. Uh, again, I, I kind of uh, in jest made the point in chapter 5, which is another chapter of genealogy, that as you're looking through the book of Genesis, and you might be earmarking uh, different sections that you're looking forward to, my guess is that you're probably not looking to chapter 5 and chapter 10 as just something really exciting for you to, to work through. But I'm hopeful that as we uh, look at Genesis chapter number 10, as we work expositionally, verse by verse, through uh, this book of Genesis, that uh, we will go through this text, this text of genealogy with purpose, as we understand what God has for us uh, in and through it. Um, I've spoken many times in my opening illustrations about different family vacations that, that I've gone on. I don't know what it is about my childhood, but those were really apparently impactful for me as far as memories and things that I've connected to back into my even my adult years. And now as I'm raising my own family, trying to even some ways uh, recreate some of those memories that, that I've had. But there's something about family vacations that are just impactful. I don't know if it's summertime and just you're all excited, you're getting away, going somewhere new that you've never been. There's something for a child that's something, it's exciting, right? You look forward to those things. And maybe that's the inner child of me, but even today I, I still look forward to vacations as we always do to try to get away from the rat race of life and, and refresh and relax a little bit. But um, I'm not going to talk about spe a specific experience or destination or a place that we went, but I want to talk about, by opening illustration, a little bit of the process that happened going up to these vacations that we took. And kids, I don't know if you probably don't remember this day, and this might shock you, but there was a day that there did not exist a GPS, <laughs> right? And the days before a GPS, we had these things called maps, Right? And we had to use these, these maps often. And uh, it wasn't just any map that the Stanley family used. We used the mother of all maps, published by none other than Rand McNally. Right? How many of you know of the, the old infamous Rand McNally map? Right? So, so my dad uh, was, drove truck for a majority of my childhood. Uh, my dad uh, prided himself about... Um, finding the most efficient route. And of course, knowing that that is my dad, he never got lost. Um, and he was always, again, looking for the best route to take. And so if you look behind the curtain in the preparation going up to these infamous family, Stanley family vacations, there was my dad at the kitchen table with the Rand McNally fully spread out. And he was doing what? He was mapping out our, our path. Our, our trek, our, our route to whatever destination that we were going to go to. And this was to not, this was an exercise that was not to be taken lightly, right? I was to not bug him. I was to not point my fingers around at different spots and directions. He was focused and determined on this task to get the most efficient route. And that's the beautiful thing about maps. And we've become very dependent on that GPS in our pocket that is our smartphone, right? I don't know that uh, probably a lot of us has lost our sense of direction that many previous generations may have uh, been more efficient in than, than those that are just looking for the next turn on our GPS. But what do maps do? Right? They plot a course and they show us the path forward. Right? And in Genesis chapter number 10, we essentially have a map right here in this text. What is this map? It's not a map of 
destinations necessarily in places, which those are there as we look at some of these geographical places, but it's really a map that we can see of how the history of mankind went from eight individuals coming off an ark to what? What we have today with a, a, a earth that is fully populated with all tribes, tongues, and nations, right? This is where we see how that go be fruitful and multiply really came to fruition. We see this genealogy of generation after generation, God being faithful to, to sustain uh, his image bearers, uh, man and women on this earth. And so here we have Genesis chapter number 10. And before we dive into this, I want to remind us of where we came from in Genesis chapter number 9. I will not re-preach it, I promise. Um, I just want to read the last few verses before we dive into chapter number 10, because it absolutely gives us the context um, into chapters 10 and chapter number 11, which, which actually are connected. Chapter 10 is going to do what? It's going to lay out the end state of who belongs to whom. And then chapter 11 is actually going to work backwards and it's going to tell us how those groups of people will be organized and distributed across the general region, right? From a geographical perspective. But it's all in the context of these last few verses of Genesis chapter number nine. So look with me as I read verse number 25, excuse me, verse 24. When, when Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So right here we see in Genesis chapter number nine, we see a curse that was given to who? Who is the curse given to? Which would represent which brother or son, excuse me? Yeah, him. And then there's a blessing given to the other two sons, which are who? Shem and Japheth. Good, just making sure you guys are with me, right? So we have a curse. One son is cursed, and then we have two sons that are, are blessed. And it's on this foundation of a line that is cursed and two lines that are blessed that we're going to see um, really all the peoples come into uh, this genealogy here in chapter number 10. So before we dive into this text one more time, I want to take a step back. and I want to have just a moment of transparency before I start diving into this text and do my best to pronounce all these names and get everything correct here. Uh, but as we do that, I want us to be honest with, again, how we typically approach a genealogy in our everyday Bible reading. Because really, again, this is our purpose. This is our goal in preaching. It's to help you as an individual and even ourselves as, as elders and pastors to handle God's word, how? Rightly, right? In a way that will honor his word. And so if you're like me, Anytime I come into a text of genealogy, I do one of two things. I'm just being honest with you, transparent. I typically either skip it and move on to the next chapter or the next section or the next part of whatever's going on, or 
I really am spiritual. And I say, you know what, I'm going to work my way through this. And I fumble through the pronunciations of the names and I have no idea what's going on. And I get extremely frustrated by the end of it. And I have no idea what I just did. And I'm left kind of scratching my head about what's really the point of this whole genealogy thing. One of two things, I skip it or I stumble through it. How many of you guys have ever done one of those two things? Okay, a couple of you, good, right? So I want us to be transparent in that and understand that there's a human aspect here that is difficult for us to really value this section and this type or even this genre of text that we call genealogies. Just name after name, generation after generation, father and son. I get it, right? Let's move on to grace and mercy and the cross and salvation, right? Let's get to the good stuff. But the good stuff, absolutely, I want to challenge us, is here in Genesis chapter number 10. We're going to see a line that is preserved. We're going to see that promised Messiah being able to be preserved all the way through these generations as we come out onto the end and we see Christ really coming to this earth just as was prophesied. And he really did live a perfect and sinless life. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, we today can have hope for all eternity because of what? A preserved line. Because of a genealogy. We see God's faithfulness. So I want to give us a reminder that God's word tells us in 2 Timothy chapter number 3, verses 16 and 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is, I love this word in relation to genealogies, it is profitable. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There is opportunity. There is profitableness here in Genesis chapter number 10 for us to consider. So it's on that context that we can approach Genesis chapter number 10, not with the mindset that, man, can we just skip over this and get to the Tower of Babel and get to all this other stuff that's going to go on in in Genesis, chapter, in, in Genesis? Or can we maybe just stumble through this and maybe I can find something at... Guys, we don't have to skip it. We don't have to fumble through it. We can approach this with purpose and it can bless our heart and our life yet this morning. So I want to give us three um, reasons, three reminders of what genealogies point us to in relation to who God is. So this is kind of the the pre-sermon. Don't worry, I'm I'm not going to go long. I'm conscious of my time this morning. I know we have communion and we want to dovetail that communion right into this at the end. And I'm praying for God's grace to do just that. So three reasons or three purposes of genealogies that remind us of who God is. First of all, genealogies show us that God is sovereign over all things and all peoples. Genealogies show us and remind us They demonstrate to us that God is sovereign over all things and all peoples. We're reminded of this in Ephesians chapter number four. It says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So by sovereign, what do we mean there? God possesses supreme and ultimate power. This is his, what, omnipotence, theologically speaking, right? He is all-powerful. This is the God that we serve. But he is, that power is over all things and over all peoples. This is his 
sovereignty. There is nothing greater. There is no higher authority in this world and in this universe than who? Than God. So when we say that genealogies demonstrate and show to us, it reminds us in our frail human minds that God is sovereign over all things and all peoples. Secondly, it reminds us that genealogies show us that God uses imperfect people for his purposes and for his glory. God uses imperfect people for his purposes and his glory. As we go through these genealogies, if you've been in church at any stretch of, of time, you'll be able to remember as we go through some of these people and we look at these people groups, uh, you'll remind yourself of, of how God uh, even judged these people and some of the wickedness that, that happened on their part. But it was all part of what? God's plan to redeem a people, the nation of Israel, to Himself. So God is sovereign. I'm reminded of Psalm 115, verses 1-3. through 3. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God does all that he pleases. He is sovereign. It is his will. It is his way. And he even uses imperfect mankind to accomplish his purposes and to bring him maximum Glory. Thirdly, genealogies show us that God is involved and interested into the details of mankind. God is involved and interested into the details of mankind. You look at some of the uh, improper views on who God is based off of Genesis and some of these evolutionary ideas or theistic evolution. We know that people draw an improper conclusion that God is a distant, disconnected being, right? Yeah, he might have created something and spun it all up and got it going, but he's not involved into the everyday details of, of life. This is not the God that we see here in Genesis. And it's certainly not the God that we see reigning over all and in all these generations of mankind through these genealogies of Genesis chapter number 5 and chapter now, now chapter number 10. Again, based on the context of chapter 9, chapter 10 is going to give us the roadmap to the expansion of the nations. And ultimately, we can see how each of those nations will impact by either this cursed originating from the line of Ham or a blessing coming from the line of Shem and Japheth. So with that said, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. We'll start working through our text this morning. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you've given us your word that is inspired, it is breathed out, it is errant without air, and that we can anchor our hearts, our lives, we can trust it completely, knowing that it is true. Father, it is the only source of truth. Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. So, Father, this morning we run to no other place but your word. And I pray that as we look into Genesis chapter number 10, as we work through um, in our frail human minds these difficult names and these geographical places that may or may not mean much to us, Father, I pray that we would see your spirit 
working, that we see your sovereign hand, your, your providential plan, your, your story of redemption, pursuing us, reaching out to us. And we thank you, Father, that your will cannot be broken, that your grace will have its way, and that you will redeem a remnant to yourself. So, Father, I pray this morning that you alone would be glorified. Give us grace to hear. Give us grace to respond in obedience. And, Father, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is the line of, of Japheth and his descendants. We see this in verses uh, really one through five. So let's go ahead and start reading our text. Chapter number 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripheth, and Tugamar. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tertius, Kittim, and Dodamin. These are the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nation. So again, a reminder, Japheth is which one of Noah's sons? He's which one? He's the youngest, right? So Japheth is the youngest son of Noah. So Japheth's descendants, can you go ahead and pull up that map for me, Troy? I don't know if we need to cut the lights at all, but we got a lot of geography here, so I wanted to just kind of give us a visual representation. This was probably the decent map that I could find that just kind of lays everything out so you can kind of see who was landing where, right? So if you, you consider the descendants of, of Japheth, they're largely going to populate what we would know today as, as Eastern Europe, right? So we see Europe there, and we kind of see Eastern Europe. Um, we're going to have... Uh, settlements that would include modern-day Ukraine, that would be Gomer. We would have Turkey that would uh, make up Magog, Tubal, and Meshech. We would have uh, Greece represented here through Javan. Southern Russia would be Ashkenaz. We would have Cyprus, which would be Elisha, and the Greek Isles, which would be Kittim, right? So from a geography perspective, you can kind of see how all of them are starting, starting to distribute. I wish I had a little laser pointer here. Mental note for next time. Um, but this is, this is kind of how everything is laid out. So you can go ahead and leave that up, Troy, as, as we work through this. But this is the line of, of Japheth. Then we have the line of, of Ham, right, and his descendants. Ham is Noah's middle son. Ham is the one who had the curse that was pronounced upon him and his line, right? So Ham's descendants would largely be responsible for populating much of what we would know as today as northern Africa, and even the kind of classic Middle East, along with southern and eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, right? The nations that would be settled by Ham would be the Sudan, which would be Cush. Egypt would be, um, and Libya, which would be Put. And Sheba, which would be Yemen. Sidon would be Lebanon. And then what we would know as Palestine would be um, the people of Canaan, right? So again, you kind of see those represented there kind of in, in kind of northern Africa, moving into the Middle East there. And then we have this final line, the line of Shem and his descendants, right? Shem descendants grew up in, in what would be known as our dominant countries of the Middle East. This would be countries like Iran and Iraq and Assyria, Saudi Arabia. Those would be Elam, Asher, Aram, and Joktan. 
right? And we also have Eber represented here, which would be kind of in that ancient Mesopotamian area, right? And through Eber, who do we have? This is the line of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, right? So we have, again, these classic kind of Hebrew uh, nation of Israel descendants here, right, through the line of, of Shem. In fact, Eber, it's also noted here as you study this out, Eber, uh, in the designation Hebrew, many people think that Eber would be a derivative of that word, word Hebrew. So we've got a lot of history here, right? We've got a lot of people groups, a lot of geography here that's going to be represented as we look at chapter 10 and we see these nations, these people groups dispersed and organized together. We're actually going to see how that happens in chapter number 11 through the Tower of Babel. Uh, but ultimately, what is God doing here? He is distributing mankind. He is, he is pushing them out and causing them to organize in unique ways with a unique tongue and language and organize as formal people groups. Look with me in verses 6 through 19. As we work our way through the sons of Ham, we see Cush in Egypt and Put in Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Reama, and Sabtica. The sons of Reama, Sheba, and Dedan. Verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. So Nimrod gets a unique designation here, right? So what does it say about, about Nimrod here in verse number 8? Nimrod, he was the first on the earth to be a what? A mighty a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna, the land of Shinar. Verse number 11, from that land, he went into Assyria and built what? Nineveh. What do we know about Nineveh? Somebody tell me. Yeah, what do we know about Nineveh? Okay. Yeah, but why didn't he want to go there? Do we remember? Yeah. Yeah, they were wicked people, right? He was essentially scared. They had a reputation. And where does that people group come from? Which line? The line of, yeah, yeah, Nimrod, which comes from the line of, of Ham, which was the one that was given the, the curse, right? We see the progression here, right? So what do we know about, about Nimrod? Nimrod is interesting that he gets called out in a specific designation here. He's called out as the first mighty man. Unfortunately, Nimrod did not use his, his mighty influence uh, to honor the Lord, right? In fact, um, in rabbinic tradition, actually the Tower of Babel is known as the house of, of Nimrod, Right? And there was all kinds of wickedness that were going on there, right? He was known for receiving a divine praise unto him, unto himself. So Nimrod has a reputation, and his reputation is about as good as it's going to get here in chapter number 10, because everything else we know about him is extremely wicked and, and negative. All right, mental note, don't print front and back on your notes. <laughs> yeah, that's right, there we go. 
Here we go. All right. I'm back in action here. So turn over to Genesis chapter number 11. We're just going to give you just a little glimpse of this in verses 1 through 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for who? Ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. It's important to note here, even post-flood, that we still have the presence of what? The presence of sin. Right? We have the depravity of mankind certainly not going away anytime soon. Right? We have here that the people of the earth were concerned about making a name for whom? Themselves. They weren't concerned about serving the Lord who uh, they should know through oral tradition had brought them uh, through this flood, that the Lord had delivered Noah and his descendants. And here we have them forgetting who God is, what he has done for them, what he has promised for them, even looking back to Genesis chapter number three, that there was a promised Messiah who will come and crush the head of, of Satan. They've forgotten all this and they're concerned about who? Themselves. Why well, we see this in Romans chapter number one. Turn there with me. Romans chapter number one. Verse number 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are what? Without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, in their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a, what, lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. So we see a progression here, don't we? With the history of mankind. Pre-flood, 
progressing and more and more wickedness and violence. Post-flood, progressing in days, they're concerned not about God and His deliverance and His provision and His sovereignty as God in over all and in all, but rather they're concerned about making a name for themselves. So there's, there is a uniqueness, but also a universal aspect here about the depravity of mankind, the sinfulness of mankind. So it's important for us today to understand that we're cut from the same cloth. We're the same flesh and blood today, in our day. The struggles that they had, the propensity for us to try to pop, prop ourselves up over others, propensity for ourselves to pursue our own name rather than the name and fame of God and Christ that we sang about even this morning? Has it really changed at all? No, it hasn't. So from a point of application, there's a call for self-awareness in this genealogy. As we understand that the people of this earth are plagued with sinfulness. Why? Because we're descendants of who? Ultimately, Adam. And by one man, sin entered into the world. And so by sin, it's passed upon all men. For all have sinned. Why do we know Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. So friends, there's an important aspect of application for us to understand that we need to have a healthy self-awareness of our, what? Of our sinfulness, of our frailty. It's easy for us to, read through a genealogy and look through a chapter and say, man, that was a really bad guy there. That was a really wicked nation. That people did some really horrible things. And in doing that, we distance ourselves from that reality, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that I'm a sinner. And I need God for every breath that I take, every step that I take, every thought that I think left to myself, I'm going to pursue my own name, my own fame, my own way. If left to myself, I will pursue my own depravity. But by God's grace. There's a distinction here. One line is cursed. Two lines are blessed. And as we look at the people groups that are represented here, we understand that because of that curse, because of those choices, there are consequences. Going back to Noah and his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. So we see the distinctions here this morning. We have another unique description here as we look to the line of, of Shem, right? Let's look to the line, the line of, of Shem in verse number 21. To Shem also, the father of all children of Eber, the older brother of Japheth, children were born. Verse 22, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpashid, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpashid fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Pelik. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. So we have another unique description in the midst of this kind of perpetual format of just going through the names and how things are organized and going through the descendants here. And we have Peleg that was, that was called out here. 
under the line of, of Shem and his descendants. So this would be about four generations removed from Noah, and his name literally means division, right? And it's appropriately so, for it says in verse 25, for in his days the earth was divided. Now what does it mean that the earth was, was divided? That's kind of a unique term. We can make a lot of conclusions based on what it might or might not be. So what do we immediately run to about when we think of the earth being divided? Right? Don't we think of potentially our continental uh, disruption there? So often in this phrase, many people will think of, hey, is this potentially when the continents were, were divided by spans of oceans and waters and seas, right? Uh, as you look at that, again, God's word, first of all, I'll point out that God's word doesn't tell us exactly what this phrase means, right? It's not explicitly stated in scripture here, but based off of what we know about what, you know, geologically would be going on here, uh, more than likely, it's not plausible that we have the continent's breaking up during the history of mankind. Why? Because that would be a pretty catastrophic event, right? Um, likely that would have had a, an extremely negative impact on the life of mankind at that point. So it's, it's not likely that it's, it's speaking to that, right? That would have taken another catastrophic event similar to the a Noahic flood, a global worldwide flood. So most scientists, creationists, um, deduced that the continents were split up during what? During the, f- the flood, right? Um, it, it seems that that's, that's very likely as the waters would be coming up from the deep and there would have been an extreme amount of pressure coming from the top that that would have allowed tectonic plates to be able to move and shift and to be able to make that movement to what we have today. So we can put that one kind of in the back of our mind that the earth was divided is more than likely not speaking to that. So what is it speaking to this morning? So this is probably the most common and traditionally accepted interpretation. So as we look at this word earth, just like it is in in our day, you could be kind of referring to, uh, it could have a number of different usages, right, of of the, the actual term earth. Um, in, the, in the Hebrew word that we have here for this word, which is a retz, it can have multiple uses and multiple meanings, right? So it can also have the idea of referring to a nation, a land, or a people group. And so when we see this phrase, the earth was divided, and we understand this Hebrew word, it could literally be read something like this. This word arets or the land, nation, or people of Israel were divided. Right? So not talking about the literal earth being divided, but, but rather the people of the earth being divided. Okay? So this is probably the most traditionally, like I said, commonly accepted interpretation of that phrase. So just to make, make note of that as well. And so we read on there in verse Number 30, the territory in which they live extended from Mesha in the direction of, of Sefer in the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Again, so if we connect kind of that, that summary phrase there in relation to the earth was divided, again, I think we can be pretty confident that this is the meaning of that, that phrase there. 
And so then we finish out in verse number 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So what's, what would be considered potentially our big idea this morning? What, is, what does it matter, all these names, these geographical locations, these people groups, What's, what's the big deal? Troy, could you pull up that, that second picture for me here? So this is a good diagram, essentially, of um, what's called as the table of the nations, starting with Noah, his three sons, and breaking them out with all their, their individual people groups, right? We see there, over on, on this far side, we have Ham, we have Shem in the middle, and then we have Japheth on the side. We don't have a lot represented in Genesis chapter number 10 of Japheth. We have a lot represented in Ham. And then Shem is an important one here. So as we see here, I love this diagram because this is kind of bringing home the conclusion that I wanted to make here, right? Through this genealogy, we see Shem coming down here and then coming down through, through Selah, Eber, and Peleg. And then ultimately, we know that that's going to break down into the line of Christ, Right? So turn over to me, with me, to Luke chapter number three. Luke chapter number three. This would be a a familiar passage to to many of us, right? In Luke chapter number three, we have the genealogy of who? Of Jesus Christ. So it actually starts first with Jesus Christ in Luke chapter number three, and it it works backwards, right? So we have in the middle of verse number 35, the son of who? Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpashid, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and the son of God. Right? So why does genealogy matter here in Genesis chapter number 10? Why should we be concerned about these names and how they're connected and how they're ordered? Why? Because all of those genealogies are pointing to who? They're pointing to Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah that was given to us in chapter number 3. And so as we look at all of these people groups, all these generations that are represented here, can we not just be overwhelmed with the sovereignty of God? That God, in His perfect plan, in His perfect way, has allowed all the people groups of mankind and for a a line to be preserved, a messianic line that would go down and would be preserved, that would allow Jesus Christ, as prophesied, to be fulfilled and for Him to come to earth to take on flesh as the God-man to live a perfect life, to go to the cross, to shed his blood for you and for me and to defeat sin, death, and hell and to provide us hope for all eternity. This This is why genealogies matter. This is why we shouldn't skip. This is why we should potentially struggle through. This is why we should make it a priority to understand how God is working generation after generation in the book of Genesis at the beginning history of mankind, to do what he said he was going to do. He's not going to leave man without hope. He's not going to do away with his image bearers. He's not going to give up on them. 
He's going to continue to pursue him. In every generation that is past, we see God the Father continuing to pursue a remnant. That remnant will be brought to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. As he calls out, as he enters into covenant relationship with the people of Israel, we, in our day, after the death of Jesus Christ, we can be grafted into that same family of God. And aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that God has preserved that line and that we have hope for all eternity this morning? We indicated that the role of a genealogy in our introduction was that of a map. It reveals a journey, not just a journey, but a sovereign journey that reveals that God is over all and in all, a God that continues to relentlessly, again, pursue his creation with the plan of redemption that was set forth before the ages. It reveals a map that leads to the foot of the cross. And on that cross, Jesus, his only son, was giving his life for you and for me. Why? For what purpose? So that God the Father can be back into relationship with his creation, his image bearers. That that relationship that was broken because of sin will once again be restored. And just as we saw Adam and Eve in the earliest stages of the Garden of Eden, fellowshipping, walking with God, enjoying that intimate fellowship, we once again can do that through who? Jesus Christ. So do genealogies matter? Are they relevant to my life today? Should I make an effort to understand all Scripture, even those long lists of difficult names? The answer to that, I pray that you've come to the conclusion this morning, is a resounding yes. Because it is here, again, that we see God's unfailing story of redemption. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. We thank you, God, for showing us your faithfulness. And Father, I pray that as we come to your table this morning, as we have an opportunity to observe this, this ordinance that you have given us in Scripture, established by you, Jesus, I pray that, pray that we would be faithful to continue to observe it until you come. And even that much more with, with fervency and, and with desire to know you and to love you. Father, I pray that now as we come to your table that our hearts would be prepared to remember all that you have done through thousands and thousands of years that you have been faithful generation after generation to keep your word because it is true. And as you promised, you always follow through. And so, Father, thank you for preserving that line. Thank you for doing that work. In Jesus' name, amen.